This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. We continue our expert investor series with one of the biggest names in Australian finance. Absolutely. Celebrity investor, and we're fanboying a bit <laughs> over here. Very excited for this one. Excited to introduce Roger Montgomery to the show. Roger, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Bryce. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me on the program. So, Roger is the founder and chief investment officer of Montgomery Investment Management with over 20 years of experience in investment and financial markets. Prior to establishing Montgomery, Roger held positions at Audmanet as well as BT Limited and Merrill Lynch. He was voted as the Emerging Fund Manager of the Year in 2016 and is also author of the bestseller book, Value Able, which we will jump into a little bit later. And I know Ren has also read, so very much looking forward to talking about that. So, Roger, again, thank you. Very excited for this one. Uh, me too. I wish it was only 20 years in investing. It's coming up to 30. Oh, <laughs> wow. Keeping you young, keeping you young. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you, guys. That's great. So, Roger, before we get stuck into the bulk of the interview, We like to start these interviews with a bit of a game. We like to throw out some key investing themes and some topics and some indexes and to hear from our expert if they are overrated or underrated, just to get a feel of how you're thinking about markets and some big topics at the moment. So if you're up for it, uh, do you want to play our game? Sure, go for it. Great. All right. So first question, overrated or underrated, the ASX 200 index? Overrated. It's trading at uh, trading on a in the industrial index, excluding financials, is on a record multiple of twenty eight and a half times earnings, and that is higher than even the boom before the global financial crisis. So definitely overrated. What about the S and P five hundred? I'd put that in the same boat. Overrated. We're holding a reasonable amount of cash at the moment, and. A couple of investors that sidestep the GFC in addition to us have also moved to 30 or 40% cash and they're global investors that invest predominantly in the S&P 500. So that's definitely overrated for us as well. So Roger, we're recording this on Friday the 7th of February and we've just seen an absolutely crazy week for Tesla. So overrated or underrated, Tesla. Tesla is overrated. Its market capitalization is the same as GM, Ford, Nissan, and Honda. Uh, And they collectively produced 23 million cars, and Tesla produced 300,000 cars. So overrated. Fair call. Overrated or underrated, the Aussie dollar. Oh, that's a tough one, and I'm actually going to. So- I'm just not going to answer that one because, in life, what I've learned, and I've been doing this for nearly 30 years, as I said a moment ago. When it comes to currencies, there's a few times in your life where it's really obvious when something's overrated or underrated. So at a dollar five or a dollar ten, the Aussie was overrated. At 
50 cents US, it's underrated, but anything in between that's pretty much noise. So when the Aussie dollar was at 105 US cents, I moved all of our family's cash, so everything we had in term deposits and, and money, money like accounts, and we moved all of that into US dollars, Singapore dollars, and British pounds. And then it subsequently fell over two or three years. It fell to 72 or 73 cents, which is where I exited. And now it's at 67. It's still just noise. It's hard to know whether it's overrated or underrated. Now, I could tell you, you know, I could guess, but it would just be a guess and it'd be of no value. So if it gets down to 50, it's underrated. If it gets down to maybe 55, it's underrated. And if it gets up to over a dollar, it's overrated. But anything between those two, it's just noise. So, Roger, the next one is a big topic in our investing community, and it's been a really big theme since the global financial crisis. Overrated or underrated index investing? Yeah, look, very, very popular. I think in the absence of a, I think overrated, I'll give you that right now. I think their popularity may be the source of their undoing. And the reason I say that is they are so big as they get bigger. To be economically viable, they need to be big. And once they are big, they need to buy the biggest stocks. So a lot of investors have gone into them believing that they're diversified and they've got rid of what we call in our industry idiosyncratic risk. So that that just means individual company risk. But in actual fact, they're quite concentrated because most of their money is in the top five or top ten stocks in any index. The problem comes when they get so big that their turnover is greater than the turnover, and when I talk about turnover, I'm talking about the number of times all the stocks in that exchange traded fund trade in a year. So when their turnover is greater than their biggest holding, you've got a problem. So I'll give you an example. The the biggest exchange traded fund or or index fund that's listed that is based on the S&P 500, trades under a code which is SPY, its turnover, it's all its shares turnover probably 30 times a year. So that's a lot. Its biggest holding is, I'm not sure at the moment, but it's either Apple or ExxonMobil. It's one of those two. But their, their stock turns over maybe 100% a year. You know, it turns over once, all of the stock listed. So you imagine if you've got a vehicle where people are buying and selling the shares 30 times a year, if the stock market's going up and they're putting money into that index fund, then the manager of the index fund just drip feeds the money into Apple. And because it doesn't turn over as much, they have to spread out the buying over a long period of time. And guess what happens? All of that buying lifts the price of Apple shares with very little volatility. It doesn't have any days where it goes down very much. And that's what we've witnessed in recent times for stocks like Apple, for a lot of the big stocks. But you imagine if people decide they want to all get out at the same time and they want to exit that index fund or that exchange-traded fund, what happens when people are exiting the fund at 30 times the velocity of the stocks that the manager can sell? Then what's going to happen is that there's going to be a big gap that opens up between the index fund and the index And so people think that they're buying an index fund because it's going to track the index. I think in a market route, they won't track the index and people won't be as excited about them as they have been. So I'll say overrated. Yeah, very interested to see what does happen in a, in a market route, something we certainly haven't, well, Alec and I in our investing journey haven't experienced yet. So watch this space. I've seen three of them and they're pretty ugly. <laughs> people lost their jobs uh, and they couldn't pay down their record. In Australia, we have record levels of household debt and record levels, and they couldn't pay down their debts or they couldn't pay their mortgages because we've got record. In Australia, we have record levels of household debt and record levels of credit card debt. And so what we're seeing at the moment is something called a credit contraction. No one was talking about that last year. I wrote an article in The Australian about it. What it means is that the pace or the rate of growth in credit so people borrowing more money either on their credit cards or through personal loans or through mortgages, the rate of growth in credit is slower than the economic growth rate. And that's called a credit contraction. And we're seeing it. It's happening now. 
So we know that credit card debt growth has gone negative. That means people are paying off their credit cards faster than people are being issued new credit cards and borrowing money to buy stuff. And we also know that we've got these record levels of debt. And so if people lost their jobs, they'd they'd really be in trouble because of the record levels of debt. So they're busy paying it off at the moment while they've got a job. If they lost their jobs, that'd be a problem and property would be, I'd say, overrated. I'll say it is expensive. It's not cheap. The yield is hopeless. But then the yield on every asset class is terrible anyway. So it's not particularly, it's not a lot worse than anything else. It's the same as everything else. It's just that people have got a lot of debt attached to it. So if they lost their jobs, it would definitely be overrated. So I'll just say, I'll say fairly rated for now. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, Roger, the last one is one that sometimes elicits a bit of controversy. It's been a big theme in the 2010s in the world of finance. Overrated or underrated Bitcoin? Overrated. <laughs> no more. No more comments. <laughs> That's fair, fair call. Joke. <laughs> it, was, it was a device to work out how to pay people for maintaining an undistributed or a distributed ledger. So that's what ultimately Bitcoin is. You, if, a, if you're not going to have central, you know, a central register for banks or for share registers or whatever, if you're going to have this distributed ledger model, then how do you pay people to maintain the ledger on all of their computers? So they came up with Bitcoin and they, unfortunately people started speculating on the coin. If they didn't do that, I'd say it's probably got more credibility. But as, a, as an investment vehicle, it's just nonsense. It'll be replaced by something else down the track. So, Roger, as we get into the interview, the one of the things that we like to start with is the story of people's first investments. We found that often there's a good story or some good lessons that come out of that first time people bought in the market. So, as we get into your background and we talk about your investing philosophy, if we can start there, what was the story of your first investment? I was at university. I was working at Arthur Anderson at the time during... While I was at university, I was working part-time at Arthur Anderson, and a friend of mine, a guy named Andrew, and I, we decided we would export goat meat from Australia to Sarawak. (laughs) As you do at university. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We started started buying uh, goat meat and uh, started that process, and then we got completely stitched up by the buyers. And they kept changing the price on us and the volume. And yeah, that was our first investment. Or, and it wasn't a particularly good one. But it, you know, what was an investment in education? It was, uh, we learned how the world works pretty quickly. And uh, yeah, there you go. That was the first one. Not what I was expecting <laughs> to hear, to be honest. How did you choose goat meat as uh, something to export? Oh, look, it was such a long time ago. I suspect we read something that there was a. <laughs> shortage of goat meat in Sarawak. <laughs> we, can, we can get goat meat. I'm sure we can get goat meat. I've shot goat. You know, living in uh, rural Victoria or spending time, a lot of time with my grandparents in rural Victoria as a kid, you know, there were goats everywhere. So I thought we must be able to get some goats and sell them. For that. <laughs> and then after that, we, we traded futures and we did really well over a short period of time. And then the market started going down. And I remember, I remember we used some charts we, we we found on on Bloomberg we found this is while we're still just out of university and we found some Bloomberg Bloomberg was a relatively new thing then and we found some charts and I noticed that whenever the blue line crossed the red line that the market went up and whenever the red line crossed the blue line the market went down so we we traded futures on this basis and watching the red and blue lines cross over each other and then one day, my, my mother was driving me to the bus stop and I turned on the radio. I was in Melbourne at the time. I went to Melbourne University and, and 3AW, mum had put it on 3AW and they said the stock market had crashed. And, and I remember we were long futures. We bought, we bought futures and, and the market was down, you know, back then it was a big move, you know, maybe 5 or 6%. And mum said, oh, what does that mean? And I said, oh, it's not going to be a good day, mum. It's not going to be a good day. And so Andrew and I got together and he said, well, what should we do? And I said, well, Andrew, look at the chart. Look at the chart. It's never, the market's never gone down this much before. And he said, yeah, yeah, good point, good point. All right, well, hang on. Anyway, the next day it went down again. <laughs> and, um, 
And Andrew, Andrew, he said, you know, Rog, what, what do you reckon we should do? And I said, well, mate, if it didn't go down as much as it went down yesterday or the before, it's never gone down this much before, so we should hold on. Anyway, it went down again and again and again, and we were wiped out. And then I remember looking at the chart going, why on earth was I making decisions based on three months of data? <laughs> um, and so I learned a valuable lesson both about charting and the, the importance of having a lot of data. So moving from uh, investing in goats in the futures to now being, I guess, uh, heavily entrenched in, in the world of equities, how would you describe your investing philosophy, Roger? Well, my, my first job out of university was as a, an equities analyst at a small Melbourne broking firm called FW Holst. They're now Bailey Holst. And I remember David Spry, who was the, the analyst, the senior analyst or senior researcher at the broking firm, he was an incredibly diligent and detailed and patient man. And I, I wasn't at the time, fresh out of university, you know, ready to grab the bull by the horns and take on the world. And uh, he taught me a lot about patience, a lot about deep research, a lot about deep analysis. And that stood me in great stead. And I, I found that incredibly valuable. That wasn't your question, but I just remember it's sort of related and it's a good lesson for people who are young. You know, you don't want to hear older people telling you to be patient, but I tell you what, if I knew at the time that patience was really, really rewarding, I would have been much more patient. We've structured a whole podcast around expert investors and older people telling us to be patient. <laughs> I think the message is slowly starting to sink in, although sometimes I worry Bryce isn't really listening. Go <laughs> <Tell> on. <laughs> Here's the thing. Everyone, you know, anyone listening to this podcast probably wants to be wealthy. You can have a crack at getting wealthy really quick, but you'll probably fail. And if you keep trying to do it that way, you'll fail multiple times and you'll actually never get there. But if you can say, do you know what? I can be wealthy by just doing some really sensible things consistently over a long period of time. It's not particularly exciting, but you'll end up being very wealthy. Then, you know, the penny will drop for some people. For some people, they go, no, this is not for me. I had a lot of attempts at getting rich quick and it didn't work. And then I realized all of the training and all of the expertise that I had was in equities. And when I returned to equities and just invested using that patient approach, guess what? It took off and it worked really well. So Roger, I think talking about doing sensible things, being patient and investing for the long term is a nice lead in to your book. As Bryce said in the intro, it's we've discussed it a couple of times on the podcast. I'm a big yeah. fan of it. I think it to your point around doing sensible things and investing for the long term, I think it's it's really captured in that book. To kick off the discussion though, I read that you structured the book based on a Warren Buffett observation that investors only need to need to only know two things how to value a business and how to think about market prices. Can you explain uh, can you explain what that means and why you sort of based your book around that? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Yeah, sure. So there's two ways to approach the stock market. Method number one, approaching it as betting on bits of paper or codes or tickers or you know, bits of paper that go up and down on a chart every day. And that's, that's one approach. Now, to me, betting on the ups and downs is a bit like betting on black, on black or red at the casino. You're really treating the stock market like a casino, and gamblers tend to lose money. But that's what most people are chasing, particularly as the market reaches new highs. 
people think, oh, it's really easy. I'm just, I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to quit my job and it's going to be so great. The other approach is to actually think of stocks as pieces of businesses. And you don't really, if you buy the right businesses, you don't need to ever do any work because the work is all being done by the people who run the business. You just own a piece of their business. They do the work. The business increases in value through a process called retained earnings and generating, and by generating high rates of return on incremental capital. We can talk about that. Well, it's all covered in the book anyway. But, uh, but you know, the, the manager of the business is going to make you the money. You don't have to do anything. You just sit back. The problem is, and this comes back to your question, the problem is people... People don't think about how the market behaves. And so if you understand how the market behaves, then you'll start to approach it the right way. So let me elaborate a little bit more. The market is manic depressive. And you'll fast learn, if you get involved in the stock market, you'll fast learn that today the stock market went up. And if you listen to the news tonight, they'll say it went up because Trump announced, I'm just going to make something up here, Trump announced a new form, a new version of wheat is being produced in the United States. And so everyone goes, oh, okay, so the stock market went up, there's this new, new version of wheat. Okay, great. The next day, the stock market goes down and you listen to the news again and the news, the news reporter says stock market went down despite the fact that the new version of wheat is wildly successful. So hang on a sec, it went up because there's a new version of wheat, now it's going down because... The wheat is wildly successful. That doesn't make any sense. And that's what you need to know about the stock market. It just doesn't make sense. It goes up and down based on the whims of individuals, not because it's rational and not because it's logical. It isn't. It goes up because people think something's going to happen and then it goes down when that thing does happen. So it makes very little sense. And it suffers from really, really frequent bouts of optimism and equally frequent bouts of pessimism. It's really important to separate yourself from that. And so the way I like to think about it, and I talk a little bit about it in the book, in fact, the first three chapters are pretty much devoted uh, to how to think about the stock market and divorce yourself from it. But if you, you imagine you're a, you know, you're a farmer and you own a property, it's been in your family for generations. There's absolutely no way you're ever going to sell it. And when you drive in the gate each day, the neighbour, he's there with a, with, a, you know, with a strand of wheat sticking out of his mouth. He's chewing on the wheat and he's leaning on the gate and he says, hey, uh, Bryce and Alex, mate, I reckon the world's going to end. I'll sell you my farm for a dollar an acre. And then the next day he says, he says, oh, I think everything's going so well. Mate, I'll buy your farm for a million dollars an acre. And what you realise is that this guy is a lunatic. <laughs> That's the stock market, right? Think of it as your lunatic neighbouring farmer who, when he's depressed, is happy to sell you his farm at a really stupidly low price. And when he's extremely ecstatic, he's happy to buy yours at a ridiculously expensive price. So all you need to do is, rather than listen to his advice, is just take advantage of his stupidity. And that's the way to think about the stock market. So that's lesson number one. Lesson number two is how to value a business. So when you know, how do you know that that guy is offering you a really stupid price? And there's a little bit of arithmetic involved in valuing a business, but it's not complicated. And again, I cover it in the book. Yeah. So Roger, on the, on the second part around how to value a business. Yeah. So price to earnings is a ratio that a lot of people use as shorthand for valuing a business when you first come into investing people sort of talk about it as a key indicator about whether a, whether a stock is cheap or expensive in your book you talk about why price to earnings isn't really a great indicator can you sort of explain that and then talk about how you think about what is a good indicator to value a business okay perhaps this is the best way to think about it if you you guys have a dinner party or attend a dinner party if you drop the question what's any asset worth doesn't matter what it is, a business, a block of land, a stock, a house, what's it worth? People will say the response you'll usually get is what someone else will give you for it. It's, what, it's worth what people are prepared to pay. Well, that's not quite right. It's actually what people are prepared to pay for something 
is the price. It's not what it's actually worth. And the example that I go through in the book was back in, i trying to remember when it was, it might have been 1999. There was a company called NetJ.com. In its, it's effectively the equivalent of its prospectus, it was listed on the NASDAQ, or it was about to list on the NASDAQ in the United States, I think. And it said in its prospectus, NetJ.com conducts no business activity of any description, and NetJ.com has no plans of conducting any business activity of any description for the foreseeable future. Now, you could have bought shares in this company at about 50 US cents each, and if you had, you would have done really well because they opened, when they listed, they listed at $2. And by the peak of the internet bubble, which was in March 2000, they traded at $8.88 a share. They subsequently fell to about six and a half cents. And then they, they delisted. And true to label, they never conducted any business activity of any description. So what were they worth? Were they ever worth $8.88? Of course not. But what was their price? $8.88. So people were prepared to pay $8.88. That's the price. But they were never worth $8.88. So the lesson from that story is this. Price and value are two different things. Price and what something is worth are completely separate. The problem with the price-earnings ratio is that it uses price to try and work out what something is worth. And you can't do that. That's like, I don't know, putting spots on a horse and calling it a leopard. You know, it's not right. You can't find out what something is worth by looking or using its price. So the way to value an asset is to actually come up with a calculation or a valuation that is completely independent of the price. One way to think about it is to imagine that you've got a bank account with $10 million in it and it's earning 20% a year forever. It's a special bank account. I own it. It's been given to me by the government of Australia for services rendered to the financial industry. You know, I'm just making all this up, of course. So they've given me this special $10 million account that I own, and forever and a day, it will earn 20% per year in interest. Now, anyone listening to this would say, oh, I'd like that bank account. That's going to produce $2 million of interest for me, and I'll never have to work again. Well, I promise you, and for all the younger people listening, When you get to $10 million in your bank account, you won't be earning $2 million a year. That's the first thing. But unfortunately, one of the traps of getting to $10 million is that you'll have friends who have $20 and $30 and $40 million, and you'll want more than $10 million. Or you'll think it's not enough because you've bought an expensive house, expensive cars, you've got a boat, got holiday houses, and all that needs to be maintained with gardeners and cleaners, and suddenly you need more than... So you sit there saying, gee, $10 million would be nice, I'd stop working. When you get to $10 million, you probably won't stop working. So that's another life lesson. And then you've got this $10 million bank account earning $20 million, uh, sorry, $2 million a year or 20, 20% interest. What would you pay for it if I auctioned it today? What's it worth? Well, here's a way to think about it. If someone's happy with a 10% return on their money instead of 20%, well, they could pay... million for that bank account because they'd still be earning $2 million a year interest and that's worth 10% on their $20 million purchase price. So what if they were happy with a 5% return on their money? Well, they would happily pay $40 million for that bank account. So here's what we do. We turn up every day to the auction of that bank account, which is the stock market, and we say, you know what, that particular bank account, we think, to us, it's worth $30 million. If we open the door to the auction room and it's empty, no one's there, and the vendor says, I'll sell it to you for $10 million and we we're prepared to pay 30, we'll buy it all day, every day. But if we turn up to the auction room and it's jam-packed with people and they're all crazily bidding for this bank account and it's already got gone past $40 million, it's now at 50, 60, 70, 80, $100 million, well, we just close the door and leave. You know, we just won't attend that auction. We won't buy that particular bank account with $10 million in it. We'll go to another auction, find something else. And that's what we do as value investors, and that's how we think about valuing a business, and that's how you separate the valuation from the price. Yeah, I like that, Roger. And I like how um, 
the key metrics aren't so much about what the price is today and what the earnings are today, but in your book, you look at what the company's return on equity is and what your required rate of return is. It was a neat way of valuing businesses. If people want to hear us put that valuation method into practice, we talked about it a bit throughout our summer series. So people can jump over there if they want to listen. Now, Roger, moving on to Montgomery Fund and uh, and your investment company, you've got a listed company that our listeners should definitely go and have a look at. It's the Montgomery Global Equities Fund. ASX ticker is MOGL. And that mirrors the Montgomery Global Fund, which is an unlisted fund. But I want to focus on the Montgomery Fund, which is unlisted, and your new Montgomery Small Companies Fund, both of which focus on the Australian and New Zealand markets. And I'm wondering, what is the attraction for focusing on just those markets rather than going global? Well, here's the thing. When you invest globally, there's lots of advantages. There are companies that have huge growth runways, there are companies that are exposed to industries where there are no companies exposed to those industries in Australia. But investing globally has its risks as well, for example, currency risk and so forth. So if you invested, let's say, in the US market today and the Aussie dollar started rallying strongly, well, even if you got your investments right, you might find that you lose money because the Australian dollar rallies, rallies by even more than the stock that you bought. And so... It's important for investors to have global exposure, but it's also important for them to have domestic exposure. And the advantage with domestic investing is that you're familiar with the companies. You know what they do. You buy products from them. You're interacting with them on a daily basis. I'm sure there's people listening that probably interact with Amazon on a daily basis. They probably shouldn't be, but they are, and spending too much money. And so there's lots of advantages and we've got, we think we've got a competitive edge in the Australian market and the Australian economy. We know the economy well. We know lots of CEOs in Australia. We know, we know senior people in politics in Australia and we're fortunate to have, you know, really good information on what's going on in various industries. And so that helps us make decisions about where to invest. And so we think we can generate very good returns from the Australian market. It's a relatively small market. Because it's a small market, people push prices to extremes, both extreme upsides and extreme downsides. And as disciplined, patient value investors, we can take advantage of that and make very good returns. Now, Roger, Bryce mentioned a few of the funds that Montgomery Invest manages, but the one that I'm particularly interested in, he didn't mention, and that is the Montgomery Private Fund, a million dollars minimum investment by invitation only. So given that we've got you on the podcast, we would be remiss if we didn't ask, can Bryce and I have an invitation? <laughs> have you got a million dollars? That's where we fall We're over. getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> okay. When you get there, give me a call. <laughs> but uh, in, all, in all seriousness, it is an interesting concept. Does the invitation only aspect of it change how you're investing? Does it allow you to take more risk? Does it make you think differently about, about the market or anything like that? It allows us to select the people we want to work for and it allows us to ensure that the people that we're working for in that fund understand how patient we actually are. So typically in funds management, people are asking you to swing at something. You know, hey, that thing looks like it's going up, have a go. You know, that thing uh, has made an announcement that its profits have gone up, have a go. Whereas we prefer in the private fund, the philosophy is the same as as all our other funds. We're investing in high-quality businesses. We're only buying them when they're cheap. But we will hold them for a very long time, and we could hold a lot more cash. So we can be up to 100% cash in that fund. And if the market goes up and we're holding 100% cash, it looks pretty bad. So we only want to invest with people who understand that we could be holding a lot of cash and we might miss out on some gains, but that's because we might not, for example, believe in those gains. We not, might not believe in the rally that the market's undergoing. And so that's why it's in, by invitation, we want to make sure that the clients that we're working for in that fund understand precisely how patient we are. It's never had a negative year, even in its early years when the market fell in 2010 and, sorry, 2011, 2012, the market was down 10 or 15% produced a positive return. So it's quite a special fund, and yet we, we tend to invite people. I mean, 
We do have investors who call us and ask, but we, we interview them first, we meet with them first, and we understand whether or not they'd be a good fit for us. Well, when we hit a million dollars, Roger will let you know. <laughs> well, and given, and given that speaking about a topic helps you learn it more, the fact that you guys are running this podcast, the Equity Mates podcast, means you'll be, you'll be qualified to invest in the private fund when you get to a million dollars, no problem. <laughs> On the short list. <laughs> so if anyone out there has been rejected from Roger's fund before and they're wondering how they get in, start a finance podcast. <laughs> there you go. I'm interested about your new fund, Roger, the Montgomery Small Companies Fund. You know, uh, Montgomery sort of prides itself on investing in high quality companies at sort of attractive prices. But yep. usually with these smaller companies, they're at a different stage in their business cycle. And often you see the price run probably a lot faster than it would in a more mature company. And as such, the valuations tend to skyrocket with it. In that fund, how do you think or do you think differently about the relationship between sort of price and value given what you're investing in compared to Montgomery? We don't think differently about price and value. We're trying to buy value. And, and I should say at the outset that Gary Rollo and Dominic Rose, who are our small companies managers, portfolio managers, they run that fund. The philosophy is the same. The execution of that philosophy is different for the reasons you've articulated and that is, you know, sometimes these companies are pre-profit or even pre-revenue. And Gary and Dom's expertise is identifying the managers and the people because really in these small companies, you're backing people to execute and to execute their strategy and their plans. So Gary and Dom will meet maybe 700 times a year with various companies. Uh, and wow. consequently, yeah, so they're, they're meeting a lot of people every day. And consequently, they really know who's good and who's not in the small company space. So they'll invest from emerging companies all the way to what we call core companies, and really you're backing managers. And so the philosophy is the same. We're looking for quality. We're looking for value. But really, we're putting a greater emphasis on or a great emphasis on the people behind those business opportunities. Now, Roger, you flagged before that you'd written for The Australian and for people that are familiar with you, you're prolific in how much you write. Bryce and I every year do a series of bold predictions to, to kick off the year, what we think is going to happen in the world of finance. So I guess in the course of your writing and your thinking about what's going to happen in 2020, do you have any big predictions for what we might see this year? I'd be very surprised if we didn't get some sort of correction this year some sort of serious bout of volatility. Uh, I hope we do because we've got lots of cash we'd like to invest. <laughs> we've, got, we've also got a lot of money in equities, but we're very patient long-term investors. So we think about buying stocks the way we might buy blueberries and raspberries. You know, I love blueberries and raspberries. And when they're $9 a punnet, I don't buy any. But when they're, you know, when they're three punnets for $5, I buy so much that I can't eat them fast enough before they go off. So think about stocks the same way. You actually want them to go down. You don't want them to go up. If many of your listeners are in their 20s and 30s, you're going to be net investors for you know 60 or 70 years. You want prices to fall, not go up. You want them to be cheaper so you can buy more of them for a long time before you start spending that money. So that's the way we think. Uh, that's uh, that's what we do in you know in all our funds, and and that's what I'm hoping will happen this year. In 2020, if we get a big correction, you know I'll be I'll be cheering. You know it'll be it'll be great. Hey Roger, just for people who are unfamiliar with the term, when you talk about young people being net investors, what do you mean by that? Well, you're you're a net buyer, so over the you're going to be earning more money than you're earning now, and so you're going to have every year more money to invest. So when you get to your you know 70s or 80s, you're you're a you're a net seller. You're selling assets. You know, you know, if you speak to your grandparents and you say, you know, Nana, what, what do you want for Christmas? She'll say, oh, I just want to see your happy face. You know, they don't, they don't as you get older, you don't, you don't want to buy more stuff. You, you want less stuff. You don't need any more stuff. And so you tend to be a net seller of assets and you're not an accumulator anymore. And so that's what I mean. You're a net buyer when you're young. So you're, you know, you want, you want lower prices and you want to be able to, because you take advantage of those and you'll make more money at lower prices. Basic rule of investing, the lower the price you pay, the higher your return. 
obviously a, a correction would be a nice to have for us as well so we can finally get into the market at some cheaper prices as well but what sort of driving the market at the moment is you know some of the, similar to what we were seeing last year you know low interest rates and that sort of tina effect as they call it you know they, there is no alternative putting money in the bank is not really giving a yield so a lot of people are starting to move up the risk curve i guess in in search for yield i saw on twitter i think it was this morning even roger that you posed the question will stock markets in 2020 beat the performance of previous years given these circumstances and it's hard to sort of see what is going to change interested on your thoughts yes i definitely believe that the backdrop is supportive for asset prices low interest rates you think about what the market has endured. Now, a year or two ago, there were missiles being launched by Korea over Japan. Um, we've had Brexit. We've had coronavirus. We've had the trade war between China and the United States. We've had some really big issues that in times past would have caused a crash in the stock market. And I know that from experience. And the market hasn't crashed. And that's because of low interest rates. So, as you rightly pointed out, people are migrating out of term deposits because they're not earning enough money on their cash and they're moving into riskier assets. The problem is, and that's, so that's generally supportive for asset prices. So on that basis, I would say that you know, stocks and property are, are fair value. You asked me earlier, property overrated or underrated, I'd say probably fair rated. So I think asset prices are, are probably fair value given interest rates are so low. The problem is that I said a moment ago, the lower the price you pay, the higher your return. Well, the reverse is also true. The higher the price you pay, the lower your return. So if, as it, what, because interest rates have been so low for so long, asset prices are now very high. So yes, they might be fair value, but if you buy them today, you're locking in a very low return on what we call long duration asset. And so you might be fine, you know, you might get 4 5 6% a year, which is certainly better than cash in the bank. But the question to ask is, will that low return be accompanied by heightened volatility? And that's my concern for this year, that we do get some bouts of volatility. Where could that come from? I don't know. If coronavirus doesn't cause it, nothing probably will. But I'm sure that there'll be periods of volatility that'll be greater than the past caused by things that we haven't even anticipated today. And that's why I'm reluctant to advise people to be fully invested at the moment, simply because I think the returns that are being implied by current prices are just don't warrant the risk that people are taking. So Roger, when you do look at the market and you you mentioned there that you're heavily in cash and you know valuations are quite high, for the portion of your funds that you are investing in equities, are there any particular industries or any particular sectors of the economy that you think will perform well in this sort of long in the tooth bull market, you know, low interest rate, globally uncertain environment? We don't think about sectors. So look, the short answer to that is no. We think about individual businesses. Remember earlier I said there's two ways you can approach the stock market. One is to buy things that go up or down. And the other is to think about individual businesses or to think of the stock market as a place where you can buy a piece of a business. And so that's what we do. We think about individual businesses. So we look for businesses that are outperforming. Now, it might be that by investigating an individual company, we notice that all the companies in that sector are doing really well. But typically, we find that there are businesses that are doing well in lots of sectors. So rather than thinking about individual sectors where we think everyone's going to be a winner, we start the other way around and think about individual businesses and see what's being implied about a sector from those individual businesses. So at the moment, in answer to your question, you know, there's, there's very few. I'm trying to think, you know, there's some, some, I guess, some technology companies, some personal finance businesses, some fintech companies and personal finance and business finance businesses that are growing at a great rate of knots because the banks are withdrawing from that kind of lending. That's, and while interest rates remain low, they'll do okay. I think that there are some retailers that are doing well. We're in reporting season at the moment. Nick Scarley and Super Retail Group have been surprisingly strong. Uh, Cole's had a great report. Yeah, exactly. Cole's extremely strong. But, you know, the retail sector as a whole is doing it really tough. 
Retail sales are declining. The December month-on-month number for retail sales in Australia was down about half a percent. So that's tough. Volume is negative and it's been negative for a while in retail. Banks' credit growth, they're reporting their credit growth is negative. So people aren't borrowing more money to spend. So, you know, it's tough there. Mining, the, the numbers look pretty good looking back six months, but going forward, the coronavirus in China's shut down industry until at least February the 10th. That means that there's going to be less demand for iron ore and energy. So unsurprisingly, the iron ore price is coming off, so is the oil price. It's really tough out there. It's hard to find sectors that are doing well. So Roger, we've almost reached the end of our time and we like to finish with a final three questions. But before we get there, I do want to ask you one more thing. We've spoken about you know, what we think, what the predictions are for 2020. The flip side of that question is there's a lot of conventional wisdom in the market, a lot of things that you know analysts and talking heads all seem to agree on. Is there one thing or, if, or, or is there something that you think that the market and market commentators are getting completely wrong as we head into 2020? I think it's not right to say that rates are going to stay low forever. There's definitely pressure on, in, on interest rates globally from you know, ageing demographics, technology and productivity improvements, and also the fact that what's been happening is interest rates have been cut by central banks around the world, that companies have invested in technology that's replaced labour. So central banks want to cut rates to give people a job. The way they do that, the the transmission mechanism for that is uh, you cut rates, businesses invest, employ more people. The problem now is that you cut rates, businesses invest in technology that that requires less people. So central banks have to cut rates more. So there's definitely good arguments for interest rates remaining low. I just don't know that every scenario is covered where interest rates are definitely going to stay low. So the consensus currently is that interest rates are going to stay low. I'd be willing to make a small bet that they don't. Put a gun to my head and I'll say they will but I wouldn't want to put 100% of my money on that bet. Fair enough. Well, we're not putting a gun to your head, Roger. Rest rest assured, we don't do that here on the podcast. So. Okay. Yet. <laughs> so, Roger, thank you so much for giving us some of your time and answering some of our questions. I think uh, we've both got a lot out of it. We love listening to experts talk about investing and find out how they think about companies. So we really appreciate you taking the time. That's okay. No problem at all. Before we wrap up, we do like to finish with the same three questions for every interview. So we'll jump into them really quickly. The first one, now, aside from your own book, do you have any books that you consider must read? Well, look, let me say this really quickly. I wrote that book because I had young children at the time and I thought to myself, if anything, I you know, love skiing, love mountain biking. I, I do it uh, at an extreme level. So I do some pretty silly things in the air. And, and I thought to myself, if anything ever happened to me, I'd want my kids to have a recipe for how to invest successfully. And that's why I wrote Valuable, and that's how it's written. It's written so that anyone can understand how to invest sensibly. And if they decide they don't want to do it themselves, well, it's going to arm them with the right questions to ask a fund manager before they invest with that fund manager. So that's the, the first thing I'd say, uh, first book I'd recommend, and with my hand on the heart. But another book that I think is excellent is a book called by Roger Lowenstein called The Making of an American Capitalist, and it's a, 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 a story, the story of Warren Buffett. Another one along the same vein is uh, Snowball by Alice Schroeder, and it's about Warren Buffett as well. And I would start there. Now, what's going to happen when you read those two books it's going to introduce you to other characters in that book. You're going to Google them and look them up and you'll find that they've written books too and you'll be on a lifetime journey of learning just from reading those two books. I like it. I like it. Second question, Roger, what is your go-to source for investing information? So we have a variety of research that we subscribe to, but perhaps our main source of information is the companies themselves. We go and meet with them. We go to the broker briefings when those companies are announcing their results. We'll have one-on-one meetings with those companies throughout the year. Uh, That is our primary and most valuable source of information. 
And then last question, if you think back to your younger self planning on how you're going to acquire and export goat meat, the start of your investing journey, what advice would you give to your younger self? Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, do you know what? I think losing money when you're really young and you're going to make it, you're going to lose only a small amount relative. It's going to feel like a lot at the time, but it's probably a small amount in the scheme of things. It's probably the best lesson because nothing teaches you patience like losing money and nothing teaches you risk like losing money. So actually, you know what? The advice I would give myself is take some really bold risks early and do it while you can afford to. Nice. Great way to finish the episode, Roger. So a massive thank you from Ren and myself. We've really got a lot out of this conversation and I'm sure our audience will as well. Just to recap, there are a number of unlisted funds that you run, but as well as that, there is a a listed fund that our audience could uh, get around if they want to back yourself and and the Montgomery team in, and that's the Montgomery Global Equities Fund, ASX ticker M-O-G-L, as I said. But if our audience want to follow you and some of your writing and, and media that you do, Roger, what would be some of the best places for them to do so? Well, thanks for asking. We, um, we, we write a blog twice a day at rogermontgomery.com and uh, that's where you can also buy Valuable, the book. And uh, yeah, twice a day, if you get on there at about four o'clock in the afternoon, you'll, both, po- both blog posts will have been posted and everything we write is reflecting the work that we're doing at the moment and how we're thinking at the moment. So if you want to stay, keep your finger on the pulse of how we're thinking and what we're saying, well, that's the place to go. Guys, I want to say thanks. Thanks, Bryce. Thanks, Alec, for having me on Equity Mates. It's, it's really been a, a really enjoyable experience and I really enjoyed answering the questions. Well, thank you very much. And I can confirm, definitely check out that blog, but also follow Roger on Twitter. There's a wealth of information that comes through there as well. So Roger, again, thank you for your time. And uh, we look forward to chatting in the future at some stage. Thanks, Bryce. Thanks, Alec. Great to have you talking to me today. And I'll tell you what, you know, if I had listened to myself when I was much younger, I'd be a lot richer. (laughs) Well, fingers crossed. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, see you guys. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.